Morning, everyone. <clears throat> so what I'd really like you to do this morning is um, have, have the, your Bibles open to Isaiah 65 as we look at this. We'll touch a bit on the, on the second bit of it as well. Uh, but Bev's written out, read, read out the first bit for us. So two years ago, my wife Sally and I had this fantastic opportunity to visit the Holy Land, to Jordan and Israel. Um, and as you might expect, uh, a trip like that's got lots of highlights. But one of the highlights was visiting the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And uh, in that museum, there is a place called the Shrine of the Book. And in that building is a permanent exhibition of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the centrepiece of this permanent exhibition is the great scroll of Isaiah. It's actually a facsimile of the, of the scroll that was found, but it's notable amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls because it was the, it was the scroll that was the most complete, virtually complete, uh, amongst the scrolls that were found in the Qumran community by Bedouin shepherds in 1947. And this great scroll of Isaiah is actually unrolled completely, so it's the centrepiece of the exhibition. Because <clears throat> having seen that, um, and also on that trip we were in Nazareth and we stood in the, in the synagogue in Nazareth, or the, the reconstruction of the synagogue in Nazareth, and I was reminded of the story when Jesus was in the synagogue of Nazareth um, and he was invited to speak and he was handed the scroll of Isaiah. Now if you're like me and you're Western, you know, you kind of think he was handed a book and he sort of thumbed through it and found Isaiah 61 and kind of read it, right? But when you see the great scroll of Isaiah, you can sort of imagine he got his hand to the scroll and he sort of went, no chapters or verses, right? <laughs> <laughs> right down to what we call Isaiah 61, and he read out a bit there that was his manifesto for his ministry. So we've been looking at Isaiah in these last few weeks, and indeed we've done chunks of Isaiah over the last few years, and I thought this morning before we actually looked in detail at chapter 65, I'd just recap for us what kind of book Isaiah actually is, its scope and its style. Now if you're like me, Isaiah's been one of those Bible books that I've kind of dipped into and out of. Um, it's got some very well-known passages to us, which we as Christians mostly relate in some way to Jesus, and we pull out at Christmas time, you know, virgin birth stuff, and we pull out at Easter time, suffering servant, those sorts of things. But I never really got into, into the book as a whole. You know, what's Isaiah actually really like? It's a book. So from that point of view, the whole book itself has been a bit of a mystery, because when you read a lot of Isaiah, you kind of go, what's going on? Because it's mostly written in this sort of grand, sweeping poetry. It's got lots of repetition, describes the same ideas again and again, often in different ways and from different viewpoints. And it evokes events from the historical periods, the historical period of Israel from 8th century BC um, for the sort of exile period in Babylon and a return from exile in uh, 6th century BC. It describes things like the very heavens and earth participating in the grand drama of God's dealing with the people of Israel and Israel's history and God working his purposes out for which the whole of creation is waiting. And in hidden and surprising ways, the Lord is always at work to save people. We see right through Isaiah, we see God saving Zion or saving Jerusalem 
but only ever as the first step to save the planet and the cosmos, to remake it into a place of beauty and joy. And the point is, as readers of this book, if we can know and love what God is doing, it will be easier for us to trust him. So it covers the reigns of Israel's kings from Uzziah, sort of about 783 BC, through to Hezekiah, 687 BC. As I said before, it looks forward to the exile of Judah to Babylon, which happened a couple of centuries later, and then even beyond that, towards the return of people from exile. And in the middle of the book, so we haven't looked at that for ages, but in the middle of the book, there are these narrative chapters, chapters 36 to 39. And they kind of form the sort of fulcrum of the book, I reckon, because they sort of set up or they tell you about the political history, sort of social things that are happening. They describe the attack on Jerusalem by the Assyrian army, which was kind of like the world power at that time, under King Sennacherib uh, on Jerusalem. So this army attacked Jerusalem and was defeated. Then it talks a bit about Hezekiah's, King Hezekiah's illness and then Hezekiah's dealing with Babylonian envoys. And so the pivotal events. But irrespective of when they were spoken or written, the words of Isaiah have relevance to people who live through various major events in God's dealings with his people. Yeah, maybe. You might like, I mean, you might say all that. You say, so what? I live in Wagga. You know, in 21st. Is it 21st century? Yeah. So why would I be interested in a book like this, which was sort of like 20, maybe 2,800 years old? Okay? So it can be helpful to think about Isaiah in terms of its audiences, who are the people that read Isaiah or read Isaiah? And I'm, I'm grateful to Kirk Patson and his commentary uh, for this bit. He talks about the sort of audiences that Isaiah might have had. And the first audience would be people who were living in Jerusalem at the time of the Assyrian attack in the 8th century BC. What they saw and witnessed was this amazing army coming, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of soldiers, weight making laced of the, of the land, destroying stuff and coming right up to the gates of Jerusalem. Kind of reminded of that cartoon of firefighters looking totally exhausted, surround, sitting on a, like, they're just, they're there, there's one tree they've defended, a bit of green grass, the rest of it is totally black and destroyed. You kind of get that, that's what Jerusalem was like. There it was, all the other cities of Judah were completely destroyed and the army was right there. And then God intervened in a miraculous way. Isaiah brought a message and sent to Hezekiah, relax, God's got it in hand. And that night, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers died. The army was completely defeated and retreated. So if I'd been living in Jerusalem, if I lived through that and I read Isaiah, I would have been encouraged, of course, by that amazing um, um, event. and seen the hope that God gives in saving his people. But then again, Isaiah is an interesting book because there's other stuff too about the exile, which is like a couple of hundred years later, and he talked about this guy called Cyrus. Now, Cyrus was a king from the Medo-Persian Empire that conquered Babylon in the 6th century BC and kind of said to the people of Israel, okay, you can go back to Jerusalem. And so another audience would be people who were in the exile or maybe even those who'd returned to Jerusalem kind of reading Isaiah and thinking, Wow, what's God going to do next? Yeah. And then another audience is those people who lived in first century AD in Palestine after Jesus had come, after Jesus had lived, died, 
come back to life, ascended to heaven and commissioned his people. And the book of Isaiah is full of images that the New Testament writers took and used. And indeed, as as David said, in, in Isaiah 61, Jesus himself took part of Isaiah and applied it to him. So there's another audience. But of course, there's a fourth audience. That's us. How can we read this book and make sense of it? So the language of Isaiah 61 and the following chapter sort of creates links back to the book as a whole. It asserts that God will deliver the kinds of things promised in in chapter 40 to transform corruption, presented in chapter 1 to achieve the wonderful vision of chapter 2. So so in in chapter 1, it says, Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness, but rebels and sinners will be broken and those who forsake the Lord will perish. There's there's both judgment and salvation. In chapter 2, well-known bit talks about um, the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, settle disputes. And a well-known passage, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So looking forward to a time of peace. Or chapter 40, where God says, Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Her sin's been paid for. And then a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. They're well-known passages to us straight out of Isaiah. So let's have a closer look at chapter 65. So please follow it with me. Using technology here today, let's see how it goes. Whoops. Push the right button. Yes, okay. So chapter 65, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. So the first question is, who's speaking here? So chapter 64 it's one of the we passages in Isaiah where the, the author of the book is saying us, we, our, and those sort of things. And suddenly it says, I revealed myself. So it sort of sounds like God speaking, and I think that's confirmed in verse 7, where you can see actually is God speaking. So what's God saying in these first seven verses? Can you feel the pleading in his voice? He is longing for relationship. He is fervent, magnanimous, and persistent. I said, here am I, here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good. I'm reminded of the father in the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus told. So the younger son took his inheritance and took off and and spent it in wild living. Just get the feeling... Every single day the son was away, the father was watching out for him because in the parable, on the very day that the son returned, the father saw him from afar and ran to meet him. God's always been the initiator when he's dealing with his people and wanting relationship and love. But so often... And we see it in Isaiah, and we see it right through the Bible. The people of God flatly refused his advances. And the consequences of refusing God are important, and they're consequential, and they're real, and it's judgment and retribution, as you can see in verses 6 and 7. The full payment of their former deeds will be measured into their laps. So we move on to verse 8. It's kind of like a new bit. And it's heralded to us, you know. 
This is what the Lord says. Okay, so take note, people. And there's a kind of change in direction of thought. So in 6 and 7, it's kind of talking about judgment. In verse 8, it changes from judgment to mercy. Now, despite popular representations in our Western culture of a party pooper kind of judgmental God, judgment is never God's last word. He also saves. A remnant survives the judgment. And this idea of remnant is, is, struck, is right through Isaiah and other, other Old Testament prophecies as well. You know, the bit that survives, the remnant. And here we have some vineyard vocab, I call it, reappearing. There's a mention of grapes with some remaining juice. Now, another story about Sally and I. It's really nice being married to Sally. I get to do all sorts of amazing things. In 2013, we had the fun of going to a friend's vineyard in northeast Tasmania for the, for the harvest, for the picking. About two weeks before we got there to do this, there was this incredible downpour one night. They got 150 millimetres in one night. The place was totally waterlogged and soaked. And the, the vines just acted like um, vacuum cleaners and just <laughs> sucked up all this water and the, and the grapes, many of them split and were ru- ruined. It was calamitous. But still, when we got there, about a third of the grapes were whole. There was some remaining juice. And they could be salvaged, and there was actually a wine vintage for that year, much decreased. Quite tasty, actually, I might tell you. In the Old Testament, the preservation of the remnant is God's doing and injects hope into otherwise dire situations. But always in this, the human dimension is not ignored. If you look in verse 10, you can see he's talking about um, the, the, the remnant being saved, and he says... For my people who seek me. It is the God seekers who belong to the remnant. And then verses 11 and 12 describe Israel's faithlessness as they forsake God. They forget his holy mountain, they bow down and they worship the gods of destiny and fortune. So God takes their choices seriously and he destines them to the sword. When it comes to relationship with God, People always have a choice to respond to him or to reject him. And we have the same choice today. And our choices have real consequences. We move on, 13 to 16. Now some of you, I guess a lot of you, might know that old brochure that was called Two Ways to Live. You know, it was kind of like a summary of the gospel as we understand it and uh, put in terms of a choice that we can make. If you hear the story of the gospel of salvation in Jesus and the way God loves us, you can choose to either accept it or reject it. So these verses are a bit like the Old Testament version of two ways to live. You can either be one of God's servants or you can be one of the you group that's being addressed. So in verse 13, my servants will eat but you will go hungry. Now listen as we go through these verses. We can be God's servants or we can be the you group. We can eat or go hungry. We can drink or go thirsty. We can rejoice or be put to shame. We can sing for joy or we can cry out in anguish. 
We can get a new name as one of God's servants. Or we can lose our name and it gets turned into a curse and we face death. Two ways to live. Our choices are consequential. We're just going to move on and have a look at the, the last few verses from verse 17 as well. I know Bev didn't ring that, uh, read that. It's called New Heavens and a New Earth. And my feeling is that as Christians, we like this bit first. We like this bit of the chapter. Because it's kind of like, you know, it's where we want to put our hope. But there is another change of voice here. I'm going to read those verses and then we'll look at it. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a, a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will build, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labour in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before, I call, I will, before they call, I will answer. While they are speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will Feed together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, the dust will be a serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because it is. It's one of those passages that's pulled out of Isaiah and, 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 we, and we take hope in it. But we often don't look at the first few verses of, of that chapter. So what's happening here in verse 17? Well, it's kind of like there's another change of voice. And it's announced by C. Now, you know, you can sort of say, C... Oh, I've got this new job, I'll see you've got this, we'll see you. You have to kind of imagine it's a bit like this. See, take note of what's coming next. Are you asleep? Wake up. It's God speaking in first person and he announces what he's going to do. And it's about a new heavens and a new earth. It's a whole new start. It's transformation with a capital T. I will create new heavens and a new earth. And there's this appealing description of a future world, a delightful city, no weeping, longevity, security, the chance to enjoy the fruit of one's labour, even an end to the dangers of wolf, lion and serpent. I kind of like verse 24 as well. Sort of talks about better than perfect communication. Now God will answer people before they call, and hear their meaning before they finish their sentences. Wouldn't you wish that the NBN could be that fast? <laughs> it's a striking contrast to people who refuse to call on God, like we, you know, back in verse 1, people who just ignored God completely. He's not like that. But notice something else. I reckon as Christians, we look at this, past, you know, this bit, the new heavens, new earth, with kind of rose-coloured glasses, we sort of say, yeah, 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 that's what heaven's going to be like. But actually, when you look at it, there's some negative aspects to this obviously joyful passage. The vision of the future here includes people dying. And even, even young people dying. It sort of says, you know, newborns won't die, but it doesn't say that children won't die. 
Yeah, but how do we how do we how do we make sense of this? Because earlier in Isaiah there are passages that talk about the death of death, where death will be swallowed up and destroyed. You could look at it and say, well, it's poetry, you know, so poetry, you give it a bit of slack, you know, it can kind of say different things in different ways, you don't have to sort of make everything all fit together. Yeah, it's true, you could do that. Or maybe it's even even reasonable to think this passage is it's just it's just after these verses talking about human choice and whether we accept or reject God. And therefore we could say whoever we are as God's people, we can choose to make a difference in this world that is moving towards God and his shalom, his peace, or moving away from God and towards chaos. And it's apparent in this description of new heavens and a new earth that not all things will have been created yet or completed yet, which only really come at the, at the, at the fruition at the end of time. So there is a sort of a, yes, it's now, but no, it's not completely yet feeling about this as well. So belonging to the new creation, which we do because we are part of God's kingdom, as Jesus announced, it connects to the choices that we make now to move towards this kind of description of what God's kingdom will look like, this recreation of heavens and earth. And, you know, so let me pick an example from history, like the abolition of slavery, for example, generated, pushed forward, pushed on, worked at for years in England by William Wilberforce and his Christian friends for the transformation of society towards this kind of aim and for the glory of God. So if we pick up Kirk Patson's four audiences, what can we make of chapter 65 this morning? So if you were living in Jerusalem after God had saved it from the Assyrian army, you can kind of imagine, yes, God saved Jerusalem. He's going to build his new creation. But the realist in me would have said, still it's a pretty ordinary world. You know, we haven't kind of seen that happening yet. That's going to be something future for us. Or maybe we're living a couple of centuries later after King Cyrus. Maybe we've just left Babylon and we've gone back to Jerusalem. There would be this sense of hope that God is rebuilding something. But the final judgment hasn't happened yet. So there's still some to to come. What about after Jesus? Well, early Christians in the first century have thought. So as we said, you know, Jesus took on a lot of Isaiah as his manifesto and, and many of the passages in Isaiah were interpreted as being, filled in Je- with, uh, being fulfilled in Jesus. He declared the kingdom of God and we are getting a taste of it in this passage. And Jesus empowered his followers through the Holy Spirit to go out and allow the Holy Spirit to transform societies. And then what about us today? The portrait of a renewed society and creation is beyond what we are experiencing as Jesus' followers today isn't it? There's a not yet feeling about some of this. But it does present values that should manifest in us as we live and move about in our spheres of influence today, right now, in May, in 2018, in Wagga Wagga. Actively involved in God's restoration work and longing for the complete creation of new heavens and a new earth. We ought to be working to make the kind of peace and security that gives people a chance to live a settled, safe and long life. 
And we ought to be challenged by what's happening around the world today where that is not happening. Right here in Wagga, we have communities of refugee people that have come, who have come from awful places, awful situations of oppression, bloodshed, warfare, sickness. We ought to be fully engaged in the world doing good, countering oppression, fighting for the marginalised in our communities, seeking equity and working for justice. As I thought about that, it sounds a lot like gospel-shaped mercy, which we studied last year. Let me ask you this question. What would it look, for, look like for you, for me, to be fully engaged in my neighbourhood, in your neighbourhood, as a person who follows Jesus? What would it look like? Jesus is calling us to be out in the thick of it as his people, working for him in his mission. We don't just get together on Sundays to feel good. Let's pray that we'll be the sort of church that meets together to worship God, to encourage each other to get out there. Just going to finish now. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to give a, a pricey or a summary of chapter 65. So you don't need to look in your Bibles when I do this. I just want you to Get a, get a feel for the, the force of it, if you like, the, the, the thoughts that are being expressed by God as he is appealing to his peoples. Listen. I am the self-revealing God. I have pursued people who weren't looking for me. Despite their obstinance, I have continually sought relationship with them with open, welcoming arms. Yet they have continued in offensive habits and lifestyle, eating pig flesh and practising secret pagan rites. They are like irritant smoke in my nostrils, and I will judge them for their sin. And yet, like grapes on the vine, where most have withered, some still retain juice, I won't destroy them all. A remnant will survive and claim the promises of land and livestock. Those who forsake the Lord... And heaven forbid who forget him will be destined for the sword. My servants, on the other hand, will eat, drink, rejoice, sing. Those who reject me will go hungry, go thirsty, will be put to shame, cry out in anguish and face death. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Rejoice and be glad forever. I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. There will be no more weeping in the city. Babies will survive the newborn period. Old people will live long, fruitful life. lives. Reaching 100 years will be no big deal. There will be housing for all and fruitful produce from the land. They and their descendants will be blessed by the Lord. I will answer their prayers even before they make them. I will hear them even whilst they are speaking. All creation will be in harmony. Wolves and lambs will eat together. The lion will become a vegetarian, just like an ox. The snake will eat dust. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. I, the Lord, say all of this. Let's pray. Living God, our Father, thank you so much for your persistent, unwavering love for us. You pursue us and draw us out 
from us the response of love. We know that you love us because you sent your son Jesus to this world as a man to enter into our experience and live among us. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of yourself in ways that we can understand. And more than that, Jesus willingly gave up his life and was executed on an ugly Roman cross in order to pay the price for the collective sin of all mankind, in order for each of us to be forgiven for our sin and be welcomed into your family as adopted daughters and sons. All we need to do is trust in Jesus for salvation and accept this free gift from you. There is nothing that we could have done to earn enough merit to satisfy your justice. Thank you for the great words of Isaiah that reveal your dealings with people, the promise of life and the restoration and recreation of the heavens and earth, indeed, of the entire cosmos. May we live as your called out people right now, today, as signs pointing towards your kingdom, even as we long for the future where death will be destroyed, evil will be overcome, peace and harmony will be universal and you will be acknowledged as almighty king. In Jesus' name. Amen.